This is the Gonzo Movie Review, the Die Hard Specials. I'm Alex Shaw. This is Die Hard. Back from Back to the Future, we bring you a quartet of reviews on the Die Hard Quad, the first two of which are appropriately placed for the time of recording as Christmas movies. With me once again is Neil Taylor of Game Burst. Hello, Neil. Hello. Also returning after his appearance on our Empire Strikes Back episode, Mike Phillips from the Fanboys Lunchcast. Hello. And sitting in to represent our community today and hopefully lend a hand deconstructing John McClane's first adventure is Matthew Ramsey, better known on the DC forums as Matt Harrier. Hello. Die Hard was made in 1988, directed by John McTiernan, whose previous work included Predator and Nomads. It was written by Stephen E. D'Souza, uh, whose credits also included 48 Hours, Commando and The Running Man, but later went on to make... Anybody? Something embarrassing, I guess. Several embarrassing things. Hudson Hawk. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I like oh. Hudson Hawk. Okay, like. but The Flintstones... No excuse for that. The second Tomb Raider movie and the original Van Damme Street Fighter. Okay, Ooh. the worst one is a crime against humanity. <laughs> <laughs> However, D'Souza did not come up with the idea on his own, as I found out today. Even though apparently it said it in the uh, beginning. Is it the beginning credits or the end credits? It's at the start of the credits. Every time I watch this film, <laughs> I seem to have missed this point. Nothing lasts forever was a 1979 crime novel written by Roderick Thorpe. It follows Detective Joe Leland, who is visiting the Klaxon Oil Corporation's headquarters in Los Angeles, where his daughter, Steffi Leland Genera, works. While he's visiting, a German terrorist team led by Anton Tony Gruber takes over the building. Leland remains undetected and fights off the terrorists one by one, aided outside the building by LAPD Sergeant Al Powell. The structure and events in the novel are mostly the same as what happened in Die Hard. Most of the characters get renamed, and Gruber's men really are terrorists in the book, not thieves. In fact, technically, Die Hard does have a prequel of sorts, because Nothing Lasts Forever was a sequel to Thorpe's 1966 novel, The Detective, made into a 1968 film starring Frank Sinatra as Leland. Mike, you said you'd read half this book. You said half, yeah. so that doesn't speak very highly of it. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the problem is anytime you either read a book first or see the movie first, mm. that becomes your instant you know, interpretation of what the, the material should be. So I wonder how many people had started off reading the book and then sort of film was like, oh, it's nothing like the original. Ah, it's rubbish. Yeah, that would be interesting. I, you know, I was 18 when Die Hard came out, and I got pretty obsessed with it, and then I tracked down the novel, and it just... It was not nearly as fun. It seemed like it was kind of darker and, and mm. a lot more serious than Die Hard was. And half the fun of Die Hard is that it's peppered with all of these great comedic moments. So yeah. Yeah, I didn't stick with the book. Does anything drastically different happen? Does anyone important die? Not that I recall in the first half. I don't know. It's been a oh, long time. Of course, time. yeah. Uh, not most notable of the name changes was uh, that Hans was called Tony by his man, and the guy who McLean kills first, uh, Carl's brother, was called Hans, and they switched those guys around. Yep. Okay, Bruce Willis had become famous two years previously on the show called... Moonlighting. Moonlighting. He, which I never saw when I was a kid. He shot Die Hard during its fourth season and then went off to do other movies, which left the show cancelled. Any idea what the first films he went on to do were? Quality work here. Look Who's Talking, he starred in as the voice of Mikey the Baby. The Bonfire of the Vanities, 
Hudson Hawk. And after a string of not especially good films, he ended up in Pulp Fiction, because that's how Tarantino gets you, which reignited interest in him, leading to Die Hard 3, and Willis being propelled permanently from then on to the A-list. I was actually trying to think where The Last Boy Scout works into that bit. Um, it was just before Pulp Fiction. Because I thought that was a hit. That was pretty big. If he was sailing high and not doing films like Striking Distance and Color of Night, he wouldn't Ooh. have been in <laughs> Tarantino. Striking Distance I actually like. Color oh, yeah. of Night, no. Mm. No. But, uh, I mean, sh- you know, after that he did uh, Twelve Monkeys, which was very good, and then The Sixth Sense, which is bloody excellent. As a performance from him, very, very good. I actually prefer Twelve Monkeys over Sixth Sense, but hey, that's just me. Either mine, both of them are good. But, um, yeah, I love the Sixth Sense. John Breakable as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we could go through the rest of his career. I I love The Fifth Element. John has some pretty major issues with intimacy, shaking his head in disbelief at the canoodling couple at the airport, remaining tight-lipped during Argyle's friendly taxicab banter during the limo ride, and being positively disgusted when an overly merry male partygoer kisses him. With the background of strict Irish Catholic upbringing, coupled with the macho camaraderie of a New York cop, he's not at all familiar with any sensitive side that might exist within him. He hides behind sarcasm and bickering when Holly offers him a bed at her house, despite the fact that he's journeyed 3,000 miles to see her and the kids. He's hurt by her altering her working name back to Gennaro and deals with it in the manner of a 12-year-old. It's clear, though, beforehand that he and Holly were once very good friends. It was only when the responsibilities and self-sacrifice of a long-term relationship reared their ugly heads that things fell apart. They both wanted something different and both expected the other to give up their goals. Hence, what turned out to be an irreconcilable series of differences. I always thought he was checking that girl's arse out in the airport, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, the tight trousers and the... Uh... I interpreted that more as just like, oh, come on, just, you know, get a room. I could be wrong. I do like, like your, your comment about uh, John and Holly obviously being friends mm. for a while, because the the way that they banter back and forth is, is pretty effective and, and feels pretty genuine as well yeah yeah also uh, john being 33 in 1988 means that he would have been a rookie cop in new york during the summer of sam 11 years previously and apparently he's been a cop for 11 years his life for the past decade would have been a series of murder cases in manhattan a place filled with life death and business in john's eyes he could not leave that behind for personal reasons and he was never going to be able to see a good reason for holly to leave that and by extension him a good enough reason anyway for whatever was out west also the marine corps tattoo on his left arm suggests some time spent with the armed forces yeah his uh, his inflexibility and unwillingness to move like suggests just how seriously he takes his job and how mm. important he thinks it is and you know mm. that ends up serving him well once the the uh, terrorists arrive mm. we don't actually get to see uh, new york or his colleagues until what 1995 that's uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah seven yeah, in part three. See, I kind of like that. I just, and we, we'll get to this in four, but when you take him away from what they sort of set up in three, it's like he doesn't have enough contacts in four. John is kind of made by the people that he knows, 
and he just sort of turns up in four, and he's he's you know, you know I'm John McClane, and I'm here for why, why was he there? Why was he in Washington? I think he was picking up. Uh, oh, he was Lucid. sent to pick up. He was sent to pick up the hacker guy, I think. Oh right. Yeah. And ends up saving him, and then gets dragged into the events of Four Pointless. Yeah. I mean, it would have been so easy to get some of the other tertiary characters in, even just on the phone. This is an extremely typical late '80s movie. The hallmarks of big business, power suits, skyscrapers, Japanese interests, women working for themselves, European antagonists, divorce, separation, and cocaine-addled executives who believe they won the world is as present here as it is in Wall Street or Bonfire of the Vanities, which also starred Willis. Only here it serves as the backdrop for a simple man with no interest in money to protect innocents caught in the crossfire of greed. It also stands as one of the most significant and influential action thrillers of all time. How many action heroes can you name since this film that seem to have been influenced by John McClane's character or circumstance? Oh, you've got uh, Turbulence. <laughs> Speed. I can't believe Turbulence is where you went first. It's the first one. You know why? The closest film to Die Hard. Why? It's going to be Lauren Holly in Turbulence. You know why? Because I'm thinking I've got to watch Die Hard too, which is airplane, which is in the airport with airplanes. Yeah. Ah, I see where you got there. Yeah. Well, there was a whole two, series featuring of, a yeah, movies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there were a whole series of movies that were kind of like characterized as die hard on a plane or die hard on a bus or die hard under siege on... yes under yeah. siege on a boat and then under siege 2 on a train i mean i suppose that the idea was that the speed took the uh, the 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 claustrophobia of die hard and, and the feeling that you had to deal with the situation under very you know stressful circumstances but also made it really really fast so then it was just a case of right well what else goes fast as opposed to going well no just bring it back to a building yeah, you know, it doesn't necessitate a vehicle. I think the uh, the point about Die Hard being like really a product of its time is pretty interesting because, you know, if if you really dissect it, it is so chock full of so many stereotypes and cliches of the mm. era, and yet somehow it totally transcends them. You yeah, know, because there, there there's the whole, uh, you know, the the cop from the gritty streets of a, a tougher area out in the east coming to soft LA where the cops don't know what they're doing like Beverly Hills Cop did and you know a lot of other movies have done and it almost cries out to be a buddy movie since it's obviously written by the guy who wrote 48 hours yeah and then you also have kind of the stereotype of uh, the higher ups the execs the leaders the, the sergeants and the captains they don't know what they're mm -hmm. doing it takes the beat cop to really yeah. solve the crime yeah. That, yeah. that whole kind of thing that resonates really with you know in fact the, the guys at the top seem dangerously underprofessional yeah. You mean the FBI guys? Yeah. Cut the power, then we let them sweat, then we bring in helicopters right up their ass. <laughs> uh, other ones that I thought of, Stan Goodspeed in The Rock. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And speaking of Nick Cage, Cameron Poe in Con Air. Cameron Con Air, yeah, you have to mention those two, yep. definitely. Jack Traven in Speed, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, how about, I've, it's been a little while since I saw it, but um, Kurt Russell in Executive Decision? Oh, yes, good call. Now, they did a real... Um, we're not doing that as one of these, because there's a million other movies to do first. But Executive Decision is really cool for one aspect, because they bring in Steven Seagal, and he's got, like, second billing on the poster, and he's, he's there. That it's oh, like, yes, you think I'm it's going to be another Seagal movie, and then Seagal dies, like, 25 minutes in, and you're like, oh, okay. And because you've mentioned Executive Decision, I have to say this one. Air Force One. Oh, yes, get off my plane. Yeah, that's kind of diehard with the president on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> and it works. 
Sort of. It's been a while since I saw it. It's got Gary Oldman in. I just, yeah. I will literally watch anything with Gary Oldman in. Yeah. I mean, people liked seeing the idea of this sort of president who could kick ass. So to say it's a fair few, then. Yeah. I mean, he's been pretty influential. He's also been fairly influential on video games. Any particular characters spring to mind? Snake. Snake, yes. I noticed that while watching this. He's crawling around the vents all the time, smoking uncontrollably. Thorn in the side of these terrorist types. Yeah, but Snake doesn't have a catchy, as catchy a catchphrase. No, I mean, his catchphrase, if anything, is Metal Gear. Uh, I'm t- also going to say Nathan Drake. Yeah. It's almost like Nathan Drake owes more to McLean than he does to Indiana Jones. I would say so, yeah. Almost all of the above are painted as men who are simply trying to do their job or make the best of an increasingly dramatic situation. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who defined the 80s muscle man action hero with a limitless supply of bullets and incompetent, easily dispatched hordes of henchmen, was already starting to seem dated at this point. McLean has so few bullets you can count them. He's unprepared and ill-equipped, relying on his training and improvisation rather than feats of physical prowess or firepower. We're never allowed to forget that he's a detective first and foremost, as he's always scrabbling for a way out of or around every situation. We feel for McLean, and when he gets really hurt, so do we. If you can watch the scene where he pulls shards of glass from his ruined, bloody feet without flinching, then you're stronger than most with a heart of granite. I just flinched with you talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> Today I was, I was, I was like, ah, I can't even look at this point. He does flinch. He's clearly in lots of pain. He's not a, he's not a, a Terminator-style hard guy. Yeah, no. He's yeah. very, very human. Yeah, and one of the ways he's influenced other movies as well, because it, it mm. comes down to, you know, if you want us to care and relate to your your hero, you have to make him human. You have to be mm. willing to kind of beat the shit out of him a little bit. Yeah. By the end of the movie, you know, when he finally confronts Hans, he looks like the goddamn Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, even Holly him. says, oh my God, when she sees him. He is just <laughs> literally just his pants, his, sorry, his pants. <laughs> his trousers and and that's it and his watch and unbeknownst to them a gun behind his back Wolverine the most popular comic book character of the 90s became a man who was continuously hurt and having to heal battered down and broken by superior enemies yet like McLean he was a stubborn hairy little bastard who continuously clawed his way back it took Jason Bourne to change the trend towards a more instinctual martial artist hero, and Neo paved the way for the past decade of superheroes. Yet what makes Peter Parker more interesting are his flaws and weaknesses. It's this notion of a hero who could just be an everyday guy you'd pass on the street that makes Die Hard so compelling. You're left wondering what you'd do in every situation John finds himself in, and invariably the answers you keep coming back to are surrender or die. He's not a superhero, but he is a trained professional, and as we are reminded time and again, he's very human. I'd also posit that the term action movie falls somewhat short of the mark when used to describe this film. It was and remains at the pinnacle of a new breed of action thrillers, which balanced the moments of long build-up characterization and tension with explosive action sequences. The thinking being that if we're more invested in the characters, then we care a lot more about what's going to happen to them. Effectively, action films for grown-ups had occurred in the past, but this has a lot more in common with Hitchcock than it does with Rambo 3, released that same year. And also moments of comedy. You know, it knows the exact moments when you need to let off just a little bit of steam to ease the pressure. It does that perfectly. And I think that helps because of just the way Alan Rickman delivers so many of those lines in that movie. Oh yeah, I'll be getting to that in a bit. There's a bit in um, Hot Shots Part Dieu. Has anyone seen that film? Yep. Yeah. 
uh, where uh, Charlie Sheen, effectively playing Rambo, is just firing and firing away with an uh, M60 machine gun at millions of enemies, and they're just they're, they're pirouetting into the water. Uh, as 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 he blasts away at them, he ends up waist deep in shell casings. Don't, don't forget the little counter in the corner. Yes, going bloodier than Robocop, bloodier than Total Recall, both Paul Verhoeven films. Um, but then he ends up just picking up a handful of bullets and throwing them at enemies, and they all die. That's what action films were becoming in the eighties before Die Hard. That's how ridiculous it was getting. And the scary thing is, and you didn't, I don't think you mentioned this at the start, Die Hard was originally written as a sequel to commando oh it was yes it was supposed to be schwarzenegger but he turned it down Ugh, thank god thank yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i'm a big fan of commando but that is a rubbish film uh, i think it was written by d'souza as well wasn't it i think so yeah stick around bennett it's uh, no hang on let off some let steam off. bennett <laughs> did my friend have a blanket he's dead tired <laughs> That's the only film where a man is menaced by someone who looks like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> Wears a chainmail shirt. Didn't help him. Big pipe in the chest. We're not doing Commando. <laughs> We're not going Commando. <laughs> Speaking of fighting, the fighting in this is always portrayed as a vicious struggle between two men desperate to live. McLean is not a martial artist and uses the environment around him to injure the men he attacks mostly relying on grappling and close quarters moves to subdue them. It's very similar to the train fight between Sean Connery and Robert Shaw, whom, by the way, I was very nearly named after, or the bathhouse brawl in Eastern Promises. The only person in the film who appears an experienced and skilled fighter is Carl, who initially walks all over McLean, exacting cruel vengeance for the murder of his brother Tony. John eventually gets the upper hand once again by employing his environment in the form of a ruddy great big chain. Yeah, and they're, they're really fast, too. Like, they mm. feel... Authentic because they're not these protracted choreographed sequences, especially yeah. the fight with Tony, where it, you know it's over in a heartbeat. They tumble down the stairs. You expect it to continue, but no, his neck has been snapped and he's done for. Yeah, it almost feels like that part's accidental more than deliberate. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down the stairs. Well, I think it was. I mean, he, he even says, "Why did you make me kill you?" or something when they end up down there. He doesn't want to kill these people. He wants to stop them, but he doesn't necessarily want to kill them. Yeah, it doesn't fit with his personality is not how he wants to finish this well yeah no he's a cop he's, tra- he's trying to apprehend him and, and you know he even used the uh, buzzsaw to distract him so that he could then effectively do the old you know on your knees spread them read your rights and then I don't know what he was going to do then cuff him with cuffs <laughs> he doesn't have I mean that was going to be a tough one but uh but yeah, another thing I really like is the way that John talks throughout his fight it's not like they're engaging in conversation but when he's, he's beating on Carl at the end, he's like, I'm going to fucking cook you. I'm going to fucking eat you. <laughs> and in, uh, in Die Hard 3, when he's fighting the guy who's basically Carl again, he's like, you ever see the Adams family? They got a motherfucker on there called Lurch, who kind of reminds <laughs> him of Lurch. I mean, he's, he's got this sort of squeaky little voice. He's, you know, Schwarzenegger, whenever he kills people, kills them and then says a funny thing like stick around or surf's up, pal. Or whatever, just it, it's it's like kiss off lines. But McLean talks during it as an expression of his frustration. McLean talks a lot if you watch that movie, yeah. really, but yeah. mostly to himself. And he comes out with <laughs> they are funny lines. Yeah, come on, I kiss your fucking Dalmatian. I know what the heck is that? All? I think my favourite one is in the air vent, and it's not to anyone That's in particular. Just... Gonna get together, she laughs. <laughs> yes. It's just so funny. 
That is great. Uh, Easter eggs. Hans purposefully removes the silencer from his pistol to cause more panic in the hostages when he shoots Takagi. When Takagi does not give them the code and is shot dead, Carl slips Theo five dollars. Yeah, I like that bit. I'd yeah. never noticed that before. I was like, "Whoa, that's cold." <laughs> you just—you can imagine those two making bets yeah. in the background, going, "He's not going to talk." Yeah. Bet you a dollar. Bye bye. Bet you five. Yeah, uh, Theo worries me. He's—I think he doesn't actually kill anyone in the film, but he seems to be the most comfortable with death, while everyone else is being a professional and actually doing the killing. He's just—it doesn't bother him. He's, you know, he's doing his job, he's doing his uh, his work, he's kicking things around and, and hacking into the, the sister. But it, it's sociopathic tendencies he's showing there. It's just this complete detachment from what he's doing. He's, he's even well, cheerful. Yeah, he's he was downright sleepful when the, uh, when the RV gets blown up and mm. he yells, the quarterback, oh God, the quarterback is, is toast. Yes. The actor playing Uli, one of the thieves, Al Leong, played who in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Genghis Khan. Yes. <laughs> Dude who goes nuts in the sporting goods store. Um, music question. What are the two songs that Argyle plays in his limo? Uh, Christmas in Hollis. Hollis. Yes. It's the one I knew. Yeah, I don't know the other one's only for a few seconds, but it's when he's uh, downstairs in the basement talking to his girlfriend on the phone. I'll have to pass on that one. It's Skeletons by Stevie Wonder. first things that happens in this film is that John's co-passenger instructs him to walk around on the rug barefoot and make this with your toes. toes. This is why John remains barefoot for pretty much the remainder of the movie. It's a masterstroke of characterization because it makes John permanently unprepared for what he's facing, robbed of one of the key items of clothing that separates modern civilized man from our cave-dwelling ancestors. The protection that shoes give us will always be undervalued, but spend the next day walking around just your house without shoes. Count how many times you painfully stub your toe, encounter an unpleasantly rough surface or step on something sharp, and then imagine there are Germans in the building trying to kill you. That's my average weekend. But it's a wonderfully illustrative way of showing how John has been stripped down to just his pants, his vest, his watch, and a gun with very limited ammo. It's actually pretty video gamey. That'd be like the it first level. It also yeah. makes me laugh because the reason he's told to do that is to get over his, was it his fear of flying or his just general dislike of flying. I, I'm possibly just his... Uh, it's not jet lag, because that's only a few hours, of course, isn't it? Yeah. I think, yeah, he's not a fan of flying. At the beginning, he's very tense. Maybe it's just to, it's just to relieve the tension. And basically, it works, because he just has... Like, I think, Son of a... Toes. And ironically, while I was watching it this morning, I was I'd just literally gotten out of bed, and I was walking around on the carpet going, that kind of works. <laughs> and then I ran and got some shoes quick. Yeah, because he stood on some Lego or something. Even when he does have a machine gun, ho, 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 McLean is still completely outmatched, the thieves herding him in groups from a distance, making his mid-range SMG useless, especially up against Carl's Steyer Aug, which any Call of Duty fan will tell you is an excellent long-range sniping weapon as well as a basis for excellent cover fire. Oh, yes. 
John's main weapon is his Beretta 92 FS, which he carries for the first three movies, before trading off for a Zigzag P220 for no specific reason in the fourth. This is the pistol he shoots Marco through the table with and tapes to his back when he has only two bullets left. It's also probably the handgun that's appeared on the most movie posters ever, closely followed by the 44 Magnum. Make a case for why Hans Gruber deserves to be in the top five movie villains of all time. Why is he good? Why, is, why do we always think of him when we think of really good well, villains? Well, he, he's, he's never really ruffled till the end of the movie. He's calm, cool, mm-hmm. collected. Mm-hmm. He's, um, always, he's, got, he's always got the plan going. It's mm-hmm. always about the plan. He, he went in, he knows what he's doing. And I think it's just, it's Alan Rickman. He's fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, he was a relatively unknown at the time, wasn't he? He's been in stuff it, like... It was his big break in America. Yeah. yeah. And he got Robin Hood as a result of this. Where he acts Kevin Costner off the screen. Oh Christ! It's it it's unbelievable that final battle between him and Kevin Costner. It's just go away seriously. Yeah. <laughs> uh. um, that, I, I read the novelization of Last Action Hero, and Danny yells at uh, Jack Slater, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, at one point. Watch out for this guy, Benedict. Uh, he almost killed uh, Bruce Willis and Kevin Costner. I think. The original casting for uh, Benedict in Last Action Hero was going to be Alan Rickman, but he probably said, no, and they got Charles Dance instead. Which I'm not complaining at. I like Charles Dance in that movie. It was all right. There's a great line in that film where he goes, if God was a villain, he'd be me. me. (laughs) We're not doing Last Action Hero. I think um, another reason Hans is such a good villain he's mm. he's got a split personality to all intents and purposes he goes yeah. from smiling charm and approving of the suit you know he sees the suit and he's talking about mm. fashion and then just without pausing shoots yeah. it in the head absolutely no compunction about it whatsoever and it's just that switch that ability to to change from pleasant and charming to just shooting someone in the face yeah that that makes him a, an excellent villain Again, sociopathic tendencies. It's the ability to seem normal, but hire a, you know, hide a deeply cracked moral code. Yeah. And the uh, the hyper intelligence too. I mean, he's yeah. not only ten steps ahead of the FBI and the police, but yeah. he also, you know, there are aspects of the plan that his own mm. team doesn't even know about, and he's yeah. just telling them, "Trust me, I'll, I'll get the last one down." It's Don't Christmas, worry. Theo. It's the time for miracles. <laughs> the, the worst thing you can do in a film is to make your uh, villain not as good as your hero. You have got to fight to make your villain better. In Not just a film, a story. If your villain is bungling at any point, you haven't got a story. It's that simple. Yep. If, if um, like, Lex Luthor in the Superman films, you know, surrounding himself with fucking idiots, it's like, no. Lex Luthor, if he was a decent villain, would surround himself by, you know, efficient people. They don't necessarily have to be particularly intelligent, but he wouldn't waste his time messing around with uh, uh, Ned Beatty and Miss Tess Mucker. More on that when we do Superman. Absolutely. Clever, distinguished, polite and professional. Gruber never seems to take anything in this scenario personally. They are just obstacles to be dealt with and thought round. It isn't until the end when the police are closing in, the money is in his grasp, John has done his level best to screw up his plans and he's stuck with an overly critical holly that he snaps and lets his anger show. Although he also comes close after he shoots Ellis. He pulls the uh, walkie-talkie out and just plays it, screaming crowds for John and says, Where are my detonators? Tell me or I will find someone you do care about. It's like he's, he's showing his hand at that point. He would almost be too aloof 
as a villain, too detached to take seriously, but he remains a constant figurehead of menace by ruthlessly and calculatingly murdering Takagi and Ellis. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you can feel the chain that ends in Holly as he reels in this mysterious partygoer connected with John. You have no doubt he would kill her and try not to get any blood on his John Phillips of London suit. But he'd only do it as a way of getting to John. Everything has a use to him, and he's just as creative as McLean. But ultimately... Colonel Stewart in the sequel is equally ruthless and calculating. That alone does not make for a great villain. The real reason is because he's funny. Alan Rickman plays him with a dry, effortless ease, and there's some truly cracking lines that get delivered with only the blackest of humour behind them. As written, the script isn't actually all that hilarious, but it's the first-rate delivery and conviction behind Rickman's performance that sells it to us. I want others to be professional, efficient, adult, cooperative... Not a lot to ask for. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. As written, you're like, eh, but the way he says it, and everyone's like, oh, shit. And everyone's so scared of him as well. He always has that underlying sense of menace. Yeah. Some of the secondary performances in this film really do make the final piece. Bonnie Bedelia's Holly is so key to John McClane's character in terms of both an antagonist and a source of redemption, so much so that Die Hard 2 feels far closer in spirit to the first film by virtue of her presence than the following pair. Without Holly, John has a lot less to live for and, frankly, to die harder for. He even finishes the third film calling her to patch things up, which leads us to believe the train wreck that his life has become might have some hope for it. It's a damn shame that she was simply written out of the fourth film and passed off as a bad memory that John doesn't appear to have a soul. That's just one of many problems with Paul. Hmm. If there is indeed to be a fifth and even sixth diehard film, as Willis has hinted, my first order of business would be to go about making McLean as human as possible again. Secondly, bring back Holly. We want to see what has happened between them. This water under the bridge that gets in the way of your action set pieces is the very thing that nourishes the earlier films. Bedelia plays Holly uptight and mouthy with a dynamic combination of weariness and inner strength that allows her to stand up to Gruber where others have failed, and for us to see where it all went wrong with her stubborn other half. Yeah, but their relationship because of that does make plenty of sense. You can see why these two were together. Mm as well as why they're not together as well. This film does something that, uh, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I watched an action movie where they actually decided to have, you know, character growth in it. Yeah, certainly very few action movies before it. I mean, like I said, I wouldn't even define it as an action movie. It's it's closer to thriller than action movie. It's just yeah. it has action in it. It's like saying The Matrix is an action movie. Well, yeah, but... William Atherton as Dick Thornburg has the thankless task of perfectly playing the morally bankrupt journalist. In a similar role to Walter Peck, whom he plays in Ghostbusters, he's there not as the chief villain, but as the enabler, the spanner in the works, the monkey in the wrench, who lays bare the weak spot of the heroes for the main villains to take advantage of, and both times it's to further his own career. In this case, it's unveiling McLean's identity, and indeed children on national television, allowing Hans to single out Holly and put John and the rest of the hostages in serious danger. Atherton ultimately played his role so well that kids would boo and hiss at him in the street, which left him not especially happy with his choices. I love uh, when both he and uh, the other guy, Paul Gleason, who mm. plays the deputy chief or, or whatever his title is. Yeah, I'm about any, to talk about Either of me. those guys in, in a movie in the late 80s or early 90s, they mm. may as well have shown up on screen with a giant T-shirt that said asshole on it. Because that's <laughs> all they ever played. It's, I think maybe Die Hard's the only one that combined the two of them in a perfect storm. Yep, exactly. 
Paul Gleason brings the asshole he played on The Breakfast Club right back to the screen as Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson. Under Dwayne's orders, the LAPD are shockingly unprepared in that movie. They attempt to break in with a four-man team and get shot to pieces. Their SWAT team don't like brambles very much, and their armoured car blunders directly into bazooka fire. It's like the entire force was called out to the scene of a hostage crisis, aside from the one rather important member... The hostage negotiator. <laughs> it, it seems it's it's Dwayne doing the negotiations, and he's like, "Ah, oh, this is crazy." As soon as Hans gives him his first order, you well, could apparently- go so far as to say that they got butt fucked on TV, Dwayne. Yes. <laughs> Fuck you very much. Apparently, uh, Kevin Spacey and Samuel L. Jackson were on vacation. Oh, man, you got there first. And if we're going by movie lore, then that should have been LAPD's finest, Danny Roman, played by Mr. Samuel L. Jackson, ten years before he faced down Kevin Spacey's Chris Sabian. Maybe he was on a skiing trip. Taylor Fry, who played Lucy McLean in the original Die Hard, was six years old at the time of filming. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who played her in Die Hard 4, was three. Eh. <laughs> Although Taylor did apparently actually audition for the role again. And special mention must go to one of the greatest on-screen presences. Well, Al, Reginald Bell Johnson. Al was very good, but he's not the one I'm thinking of. The one I'm thinking of was that cuddly bear. (laughs) (laughs) He manages to steal every scene he's in. The true test of his skill would have been being put in a room with Hans, the movie of which we will never get to see. favorite bits of the movie see if you can uh, get all the ones on my list well my favorite by far is when uh, Hans and John come face to face but yeah. Hans is Bill Clay yeah um, that's the, the coffee shop scene from Heat to me for this yeah. film yeah and one of the things that's interesting about that is you know that there's a whole lot of gunfire and action that precedes that yeah but the way the sound is done in the movie mm-hmm. at that point which is you know the zenith of the movie that's the climax when finally uh, Hans's goons show up in the elevator and gunfire breaks out, it is so loud yeah. that the, the whole rest of the movie just cranks the volume up and it becomes that much more intense. Hans gives the game away by talking in German into the uh, right. uh, walkie-talkie and then uh, it holds him at gunpoint. And it, it's 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 a case that you you almost can't believe that he fell for it because you know clearly McLean's a detective he's not stupid and so he you know doing a fucking stupid hands he's going to give this complete stranger with a bullshit story a loaded gun but um, yeah he, he falls for it but it's just the, the real meeting only lasts a few seconds 
because they're you know they're sizing each other up beforehand, and you can you can see that Hans is looking him up and down, spots his feet, and you know makes his assumptions on what John actually is like based on what he's been talking about to in on the uh, the radios. And John looks at Hans, works out what kind of person he is, although he's already seen him in the. Uh, Elevator. Uh, the elevator from the top of him. But John's very guarded. He's not going to get the wall pulled over his eyes at this point. And then there's that she-stained finster. Moment. Yes, I love that. I, hmm? I uh, quote shoot that line all the time. the glass. <laughs> yeah. It actually means shoot the window, as in to defenestrate, to chuck yeah. someone out of but a window. That actually makes sense because he's trying to not let John know what he's saying, right? And right. I think glass in German is just glass, G-L-A-S. All so. right. She-stained glass. Oh, no, the glass. <laughs> Not that there was fuck all he could do about it, but yeah. I have to admit I do like the scene on the rooftop where he ties himself to the host pipe yes. and jumps, and it's just uh-huh. what he's saying to himself when he's going, "What are you doing, John?" <laughs> As he just caught, he's tying himself up with the host pipe, and he's like, "I can't believe I'm about to do this," and then he just jumps off an exploding rooftop. Yeah, and that explosion is still incredible. Yeah, <sighs> another explosion is the one where. Um, He's completely improvising. He's got all the C4. Oh, yeah. Well, comes the monitors up, wraps up, bungs it down the elevator shaft. Aye. And then it's beyond anything he could have imagined. And he's completely unprepared to deal with this massive explosion. Yeah. And gets, oh, shit, and throws himself away at the last minute. Yeah. And destroys a building, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Yeah. But I'm not a chemist or an explosives expert. I, is that... Right in, if anybody knows, can you actually set off C4 by wrapping it in, around, you know, putting it in a chair with a monitor to it and just chucking yeah, it? I've never got the bit where he sticks the monitor on top of it. Well, that's to create the electricity. I don't know. Well, I said that was just weight, I assume, to send it yeah, quicker down the shaft. But, yeah, there's no, no obvious way of detonating it, which is... Uh, well, what do detonators do? Do they deliver an electrical charge to the... Yes. Yeah, they'll yeah. be connected to something, I think, but... Mm. Well, then surely the monitor would have residual static electricity in it, which would be enough to set off the C4. <laughs> right in there, tell us. I think that's the thinking behind the monitor being there. But, uh, yeah, I don't want to get into Gumby territory. I also love, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. ho. That's enough that if you say that to any 30-something man, they'll go, ah, oh, die hard, brilliant. <laughs> And I love uh, Ellis trying and failing to square off. Mm, that's Tom. also on my list. Yeah. I'm your white knight. <laughs> it's this kind of, uh, this, this sort of disapproval of these sort of arrogant wankers snorting cocaine in their offices and making these deals and believing that they run the universe. This kind of, this, this self-delusion that Ellis is going through. The, the idea that he believes he can actually pull this, this around and get, you know, John to surrender, and then everything will work fine. He massively un- underestimates Hans. Holly punching the reporter as well. Yes, yeah. also fantastic. Uh, another one of my favourites, the last two bullets, when he's, he's just literally, he sees he's got two bullets, and then he looks across, and he sees some, some sticky tape, and he's like, ah, and it goes... And it's just this, this wonderful kind of, you've got fuck all, but you know what you can make with this? It's kind of like MacGyver. And that's sort of repeated in uh, Die Hard 3 when he ends up with this crappy old um, service revolver with two bullets in it. And uh, it's the, the, the magic of McLean is not that he's you know comes out all guns blazing, it's that he has two bullets and he knows exactly which two bits to shoot. How about I also it? love that uh, much like, this is not a specific scene, but much like the Imperial March, the terrorists have their own little musical refrain. Yes. I think it's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or 
something like that. Yeah, um, Michael Kamen was riffing on Beethoven the whole way through, which gives it much more of a classic feel if he'd, uh, if he'd just gone for, um, uh, also, it's, it's, it kind of reminds me of Clockwork Orange, because a lot of the, uh, um, re- refrains he uses from it are actually in the Clockwork Orange. I'm going to guess you like the Ode Joy scene as well. Love it. Safe opens. Yes. Every time. I actually got a little bit kind of misty today. I'm not sure why. I was like, what? Some some thieves get in and see. I think it's possibly that I just appreciated that piece of music now. You know, that as as I as I enter a slightly more mature point in my life, and I'm like, wow, that is a really fantastic piece of music, and it works perfectly at this moment. Really? It made me want to play Peggle. Yeah. <laughs> You got the fever, uh, and there's of course some, just some cowboy wants to be John Wayne. I always thought of myself as Roy Rogers. You really think you can beat us? You think you a motherfucker? Now, now you you guys were talking before we started recording about the way that appears on TV in the mm. UK. I, I was under the impression you could say pretty much anything you want on television in the UK. Oh, right? maybe okay. now, but back in the day, you have no idea how terrible <laughs> the dubbing was in the early oh, 90s. I, I have a very good idea how terrible. I, I've endured Yippee-Ki-Yay, Mr. Falcon. Uh, oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> We got we got a version of RoboCop, which, by the way, is one of the most grotesque and and explosively bloody and foul-mouthed movies, and it's also awesome of all time. Why bother making a TV cut of that? But anyway, they made a TV cut, and it is it's infamous for how much they butchered it. Like the bit where he uh, he goes to uh, the and also it's the, the choices of language they use as replacement is ridiculous. When he uh, the, when he corners the guy in the gas station and he's going fuck me, fuck me, it changes just to why me why me over and over again <laughs> when Samuel L. Jackson in uh, Coming to America uh, is holding Eddie Murphy at uh, shotgun point he goes forget you which you know I think forget you became kind of like uh, a thing that people said in the 90s because of this terrible terrible dubbing of, of, uh, of real words on TV I think it's really harmful to movies because it, it, it you, is. you get stuck with that stupid fucking word in your head and the way well, it's said I think uh, the uh, in the origins because uh, the one I pointed out was Melon Farmer. I mm. think that comes from the TV dub of Goodfellas. Whereas- Why put Goodfellas on TV if you also include the word Melon Farmer? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Out of Sight had Monkey Feather. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the thinking behind it? Oh, we must protect the children. So- <sighs> Like I said, all you're doing is actually ruining a great script in the minds of these kids who are basically watching this terrible version of the movie cut down with all the violence removed. I'm I'm all for, I mean, I'm not for showing kids violence, but some of my best memories of films that I really shouldn't have been seeing when I was a kid, like I saw Predator in black and white on my telly at night and I was about 10 and I was like, this is the most awesome film I've ever seen. And I, I couldn't see what was happening because it was black and white. I and was about camouflage type movie as it is. I was about seven and watched Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh God! But yeah, I mean, it's obviously yeah. Don't don't corrupt children. But this constant uh, this is probably a talk for another time. But it's it's it has been responsible for some terrible moments in uh, some terribly funny moments as well in movie yeah. dubbing history. What about the uh, the only scene in the movie that I actually hate? Oh God! The, uh, I know, and I love this movie. This is one of my all time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. But uh, in, in terms of a, a late eighties, early nineties uh, 
thriller cliche that Hang failed. on, hang on. Uh, so the, the couple having sex get busted and dragged out into the hallway, and the girl's tits are out, and she's like, no, no, my tits! Well, there's that, but this is... This is <laughs> no, that wasn't end. enough. <laughs> when, uh, when Carl is coming out on the stretcher at the end... And, but yeah. he's and he dead. wasn't quite dead. I really like that. Yeah, that kind of. Much like Fatal Attraction or Sleeping with the Enemy or any one of those kind of early yeah. 90s thrillers where I'm not really dead, I'm going to come back alive. Like, I, I wanted Al to have his redemption, but it would have been nice if it would have been through the course of the story and not when everything had already been yeah. resolved. It's one of those few times where it's like, oh no, he was not dead, that I, I figure is. <laughs> is enjoyable in the movie. Um, John McTiernan went on to direct The Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, the brilliant Thomas Crown Affair remake, the terrible Rollerball remake, and Basic. Most pertinently, he also directed the third Die Hard movie, which we will be covering in two weeks' time. He hasn't worked much in recent years due to an unfortunate wiretapping scandal involving an overly zealous private investigator and his ex-wife. Had that not happened, he may have directed Die Hard 4, and it might have been great. Instead, we got Len Wiseman, and it was rubbish. More on that in three weeks. <laughs> when you did the Empire Strikes Back episode, you noted that the movie was timeless enough that if it were released in theaters tomorrow, it would not feel in any way dated. And I think that this is one of the few movies that I actually feel that way about. Um, I watch it pretty much every year at Christmas time, and even though, you know, it's like 20 something years old, um, 22, 22, the, uh, nothing really stands out. Like the computers are, are kind of obviously dated and mm. the squad cars and maybe the weaponry, but the fact that John doesn't that, have a mobile. Yeah. None of that really sticks out as being, you know, horribly outdated or anything. In fact, the it, Twinkie packaging has not changed in 22 years. The, the only thing that could possibly stick out as an anachronism if it were released in theaters tomorrow is Bonnie Bedelia's hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think if it was released in theaters tomorrow, then the best thing would be that it just plays exactly as it normally would, but at the very beginning it goes 1988. I was trying to describe this movie to my girlfriend, and for me, Die Hard, and I know you've been calling it an action thriller, but I say it's an almost perfect action movie. Mm-hmm. It really is almost perfect. Because the best thing about this, one of the greatest things, is we spend 30 minutes of this movie being introduced to the characters, getting a feel for the characters. And like I said earlier, when was the last time you watched an action movie where they did that? But this, it goes to show that this is a really standout movie because it takes its time. Mm. And a lot of movies don't do this. They, are, they or, or if they do take their time, they take the mick with it and go so long. It's ooh, yeah. bad directing. bad, And it's also a perfect length as well. You never feel, you never sat there going, I'm a bit bored. Oh, when's this gonna finish? Yeah, no, Wizard's past. When Hans drops out of the window and clings onto Holly, John has to remove what to shake him off? Her Rolex watch. Which was given to her by? The corporation. Yes, hmm. Nakatomi. And thus the balance is restored. It's kinda like, um, it's a wedding band that her job has given her and she effectively divorces it in favour of John. <laughs> Before we go, gentlemen, pimp your shows. Uh, I do a podcast called The Fanboys Lunchcast. It's just sort of an informal conversation that eventually gets around to the topic of video games. Uh, <laughs> and is also extremely vulgar. And you can find it at thefanboys.com. 
full of melon farmers, I hear. Yeah, a lot of melon farming. <laughs> you can find me over at Gameverse at gameverse.co.uk, where we have a 30-minute podcast on a Sunday and a Thursday. Sunday we have the news, and on Thursday we have a roundtable discussion, and possibly a new project coming in the new year. More stuff? More stuff. Oh, my God. How do you sl- How do you do stuff? You seem to just be always producing. I mean, I know I can just about deal with it, but I feel like I'm a juggler. How, how do you do it? Uh, it's simple. I don't edit Game Burst. We have a dippy for that. You edit this one, and I'm thinking about bringing back an old show of mine. So. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, Matt, is it possible you have anything you want to uh, pitch? Uh, no, nothing at all. That's right. I'm afraid, sadly. <laughs> um, you can always plug the digital cowboys. Yes. Well, obviously, but I'm, I will indeed plug the digital cowboys, an excellent uh, weekly podcast. Michael Kamen lends the film a competent, edgy score, riffing on Beethoven and various Christmas themes throughout, including Let It Snow. At the very end, during the moment Carl reveals himself and Al shoots him, the piece of music used was actually from an earlier film. Can anybody tell me what it was? Not a clue. It was Resolution and Hypersleep from Aliens, composed by James Horner. For the benefit of those at home, here's what it sounds like. I never noticed that before. I feel kind of ashamed seeing as Aliens is one of my favourite movies. Indeed. I, I was like, what? Are, you're kidding. And then I happened to have the soundtrack anyway. I was like, that is exactly the bit of music. After that, another imported tune plays, the finale music from the 1987 original version of Man on Fire, scored by John Scott. The song is called We've Got Each Other, and it sounds like this. and even riffs on it earlier in the film. So Al shoots Carl, the day is saved, John and Holly go home to their two somewhat panicked kids, and we wait two years for a sequel. But what will always make this an absolutely unforgettable Christmas movie is this song. The weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. See you next week for part two, Die Harder. Manly Farmer. (laughs) 